Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. It has been my plan for some time to begin a morning series of sermons on the book of Joshua upon completion of the long series on the Gospel of Luke, which ended last Lord's Day morning. But I did not know when I began making these plans that the first of these sermons would fall on the first Sunday in Advent. I thought of delaying this uh, new series for a week, but then I realized I didn't have to. Joshua fit the bill very well. I'll preach the same paragraph we will read this morning next Lord's Day and consider it as the introduction to the book, which it very obviously is. But this morning I want to consider it, and for that matter, the entire book of Joshua, in another way. Before we read our text, however, let me remind you that the Writers of the biblical narratives, that is the books of history that make up a great deal of the Bible, Genesis, much of Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, all the way through Second Chronicles, portions of Isaiah and Jeremiah, and in the New Testament, the four Gospels and the book of Acts, I say the writers of these histories were interested in much more than simply providing an account of what happened. Someone has described the historical narratives in the Word of God as preached history. That is, it's history told with a theological and ethical purpose. A historical narrative written from a particular point of view and with a particular purpose in mind. To be sure, it is history that we get in a book such as Joshua, an accurate account of what happened, but we get much more than that. Recent study of the literary artistry that the writers of biblical history brought to the writing of their texts has thrown new attention on how much theology and ethics are taught in these books and how powerfully, though sometimes subtly, they are taught. Joshua is history that very pointedly, obviously intentionally, and persuasively teaches the faithfulness of God the reliability of his word, the divine initiative in salvation, the necessity of faith and obedience on the part of the people of God, the distinction between the church and the world, and many other such fundamental doctrines of our faith. It is a book that accents the terrible importance of the choices that we make in life, the ways in which we either prove or disprove in the moment our loyalty to God and his word. There's a reason, after all, why the Jews refer to the books that we typically call the historical books as the former prophets, and why in that way they are grouped together with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve minor prophets. Prophets were preachers, and the author of Joshua was most certainly preaching in the writing of his history. In fact, it is in just these Subtle, but no less clear or emphatic ways of conveying the author's theological interpretation of the history he recounts that help us to understand and to resolve the great problem, indeed the scandal of this book, a scandal that has made many Christian people distinctly uncomfortable with the book of Joshua in the modern era. It is a book, after all, that seems to recount Israel's conducting a pogrom 
the very sort of effort to exterminate a people that we have learned to loathe and loathe with a vengeance in the age of the European settlement of North America at the expense of its native populations. The racial atrocities of Armenia or Auschwitz, Stalin's purges and man-made famines, Pol Pot's effort to exterminate certain classes of Cambodian society, ethnic and religious cleansing to exterminate certain people in the Middle East and in Africa and so on. What are we to do with the report that the Israelites killed the men, women, and children of the Canaanite cities that they conquered? How are we to understand that as an expression of the character of a just and merciful God or the calling of his people to live lives of love and compassion in imitation of himself? Well, there is, in fact, a great day, a deal to say about all of this from the book of Joshua itself, a great deal to say about what actually happened and about why. But one does not find a statement anywhere in the book that simply explains all of this or justifies what took place. One finds instead, as so often in the biblical histories, context, qualification, a variety of literary devices, including hyperbole, exaggeration for effect, and some often subtle interpretive comment woven through the fabric of the narrative. We find people of Canaan who enter the community of Israel. And we find Israelites who are cast out of that community. Clearly racial identity is not what matters in the long run. The defeat of the Canaanites is very clearly regarded in Joshua as the long postponed judgment of these people for their sins. We learn much else. We'll see all of this as we proceed. But today... Joshua as a whole. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. As you may remember, Joshua, as a name, means Yahweh saves. And his name is a fitting title to a book that recounts how the Lord granted victory, life, and the promised land to his people. Indeed, in this opening paragraph, the Lord is speaking throughout about what he has promised and about what he is about to do. The protagonist in the book of Joshua is Yahweh himself, much more so than Joshua, his servant. The report of the death of Moses twice in the opening two verses, forms an inclusio with the concluding few verses of the book at the end of chapter 24, where we read of the death of Joshua and Eleazar the priest. The book is going to relate what happened between the death of Moses and the death of Joshua. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. It's a point of some importance, even for our consideration this morning, that Israel never once in her history 
occupied this entire territory. The heartland of the ancient Hittite Empire is what we know today as modern Turkey. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you, wherever you go. Father in heaven, we now begin our Advent worship. And we begin the book of Joshua. And we pray that we may learn from it how certain it is that every promise that you have made will be fully, completely, and perfectly fulfilled. We may not know when, but that such things will come to pass, such gifts will be received. Of this we can be sure. Strengthen our faith. This morning and in these Lord's days to come, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, I said that the opening paragraph of Joshua would make for a sermon appropriate for the first Lord's Day in Advent. Advent, as you know, means coming or arrival. In the Christian liturgical calendar, Advent, which begins the liturgical year, The first Sunday in Advent is therefore the Christian New Year's Day, is the celebration of two comings. The coming of the Incarnation, the arrival of God the Son in the world as a man to save his people from their sins. That is the Christmas history that we will be singing and celebrating these weeks. And equally, his second coming at some future date that we celebrate in anticipation. Most Christians tend to forget that Advent is a celebration of the second coming and think of it instead as simply the run-up to Christmas. But in fact, Advent, as it was developed uh, through the years, came to be the place in the Christian year when both of the Lord's comings were to be remembered and celebrated. In our modern world, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ has been overwhelmed in our secular society and by the celebration of Christmas. But as the season begins, we are to remember that there are two Advents, not just one, and both are essential to our Christian faith. What is more, if the second coming is not celebrated at Advent, it isn't celebrated anywhere in the Christian calendar, and that can't be right. Our entire faith rests on the foundation of a future that will be revealed when Jesus Christ arrives in the world a second time. Some of our most beloved Christmas hymns explicitly tie the first coming of the Lord, his incarnation, to his second coming. I remember a fellow minister in our presbytery years ago 
objecting to the singing of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, because the hymn seemed to him to suggest that Jesus hadn't yet come. But if you read the hymn, you'll see that the hymn beautifully trades on Israel's long waiting for the appearance of the Messiah to describe the anxious waiting of the church of Christians today for the Lord's second coming. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. Just as an Israelite believer could have prayed that prayer 500, 800, 1,000 years before the birth of Christ, so we members of the new Israel can sing and pray that prayer today. The 12th century Christian who wrote that beautiful hymn knew very well that Jesus had already come in the flesh. He was praying that he would come again as he had promised he would. As the ancient saints waited for his first coming, so we wait for his second, only the more confidently because he has already come once. Now, as I said, Joshua has something to tell us about Advent. Joshua represents both in biblical history and in biblical prophecy or typology as a form of prophecy, a coming of the Lord, a consummation, a fulfillment of a promise made long before. The New Testament reminds us that Canaan, the promised land that Israel would occupy under Joshua's leadership, was a type or an embodied prophecy of heaven. In Hebrews 11, we are taught that the saints of the ancient epoch knew very well that Canaan was only a picture of the true and eternal promised land, and that those believers were looking for and waiting for a better country, a heavenly one. In Hebrews 4, we read that when Israel entered the promised land under Joshua, they did not enter the rest of God, not the true and final rest. That rest is heaven, and no one gets to heaven by occupying real estate in this world but by a lifetime of patient faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no surprise that Jerusalem, the city that would become the capital of the promised land, of the nation of Israel, once it had been developed and settled, Jerusalem would become the New Testament name for heaven itself, the New Jerusalem. This prophetic relationship between Canaan and heaven is so clear in the Bible that it was an easy and natural step for our poets and our singers to liken Israel's crossing of the Jordan River to the death of believers and her entrance into the promised land as the believers entering heaven. I looked over Jordan, and what did I see coming for to carry me home? A band of angels coming after me coming for to carry me home. Or, when I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. A great many more statements like those in our hymns and songs have fixed 
the history of Joshua in the church's mind and heart as a pattern or type of the entrance of every believer into the true and eternal promised land. It was from the history of Joshua that John Bunyan got his idea to liken the death of pilgrims, his pilgrims, to a crossing of a river. But like that arrival, which every follower of Jesus Christ looks forward to with eager anticipation, Israel's entrance into Canaan came only after long centuries of waiting. Some 600 years separated the Lord's first promise that he would give Israel the land of Canaan as her own land, this land of milk and honey. I say some 600 years separated the first giving of that promise from Israel's occupation of the land. 600 years is a long time. 600 years ago, Columbus had not yet sailed westward to find the Indies. 600 years ago, the Reformation was still years in the future. 600 years ago, the printed book, as we know it, had not yet been invented. During those 600 years, Abraham would have sons and grandsons and great-grandsons who would eventually find their way to Egypt and to prosperity there. But as the years and then the centuries passed, prosperity would turn to slavery and misery, and generations of the descendants of Abraham would live at the beck and the call of cruel masters. By the time Moses appeared on the scene to lead Israel from Egypt to the Promised Land, many generations of Israelites had come and gone, hoping to see that land for themselves but never to do so. But now, finally, as Joshua begins, the nation sits poised on the east bank of the Jordan to enter the land and take possession of it. Why the delay? Why the centuries of waiting? Why had it been necessary for so many Israelites to live their lives in disappointed longing? Well, we are given one explanation. The iniquity of the Amorite was not yet full. The Lord said that to Abraham as far back as Genesis 15 when he first made the promise of the land in explaining why it would be years, centuries indeed, before Abraham's descendants would actually take possession of the gift that God had promised. The Lord is just and merciful and to give Canaan to the Israelites, he would have to take it from the Amorites a general name for the inhabitants of Canaan. He gave the Amorites time, a lot of time, as it turned out, to repent of their sins, and vicious, vicious sins they were. But they never did. In the same way, we are told that we have to wait for the Lord's second coming for the same reason. As Peter tells us in his second letter, as we read at the end of Hebrews chapter 11, we have to wait for the second coming because there are others yet to be saved and to be included in the company of those who will live with us and God in heaven forever. And because God is determined to give the human race every possible opportunity to repent and believe in his Son. And so Israel waited for the promised land. And so we wait for it as well. Still, for those of us who wait, it is a difficult thing to do. 
Christians wait for so much. In some ways, this waiting is the very essence of our lives as Christians. It's certainly a principal feature of the life of faith as that life is described for us in the Word of God. God withholding the fulfillment of His promises and coming and not coming immediately to the aid of His people in crisis or in need is, as you know, a common motif in the Psalms. But the immediate satisfaction of desire does not produce a holy life. It cannot produce a holy life. It does not train and exercise faith. It does not serve to keep believers looking upward and forward, concentrating on the one who has made the promise and is coming to fulfill it. Here is perhaps the principal difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. The unbeliever lives for the present. He wants his goods now. He does not live his life in anticipation of what will be his only in some future day, perhaps some distant future day. And that makes for a very different life, lived in a very different way. Isn't it obvious that many of our problems as a nation today stem from the fact that people want their desires satisfied now, not later. The Christian principle has largely disappeared from our common life. And so we borrow money instead of saving it. We throw caution to the wind and mortgage the future for the sake of the present. We rarely seriously consider the long-term consequences of decisions that promise short-term benefits. Florence and I joined Amazon Prime the other day, the chief attraction being free two-day shipping. I ordered some books on Tuesday morning this past week. They arrived in the office before noon on Wednesday. That's the American dream, is it not? (laughs) You hardly have to wait at all for anything. But nobody can live the Christian life that way. Nobody ever has. Nobody ever shall. What Christians long for most are invariably the things they wait for the longest. All their lives they work and they pray for the conquest of their sins. They wait upon God to take them away. And no matter how much real progress is made, at the end of their lives they are still waiting to be made the righteous and loving people they desire to be. And they know they ought to be. They wait for justice to be imposed upon this sin-sick world in which so much injustice blights the lives of vast multitudes of people. And no matter how long their lives last, the world will be largely, always has been, always shall be, until Christ comes, the world will be largely as unjust a place as ever it was before. And they wait for the salvation and the blessing of others. And while in some cases it comes, even quickly, in many others, we wait through our lives, hoping, longing, praying for God to be as gracious to others we know and love as He has been gracious to us. How many times has it happened that it was only after a person's death that the one he or she had been praying for for long years finally came to see the light? I've recommended to you ladies before 
Elizabeth Lesur's diary, published after her death under the title, My Spirit Rejoices. There's something very typical about her life story as a Christian woman. It's the kind of story that nowadays would justify a television miniseries if only there were producers and directors and writers who cared to tell a story as fascinating and as important as this one. Plagued by ill health most of her adult life, becoming a serious Christian only after her marriage, married to an unbelieving man who had no respect for her Christian faith, indeed who did his best to undermine it, and at one point early on almost succeeded in doing so. Remaining steadfastly loyal to Jesus Christ while living amidst the swirl of Parisian high society in the Gilded Age. Elizabeth Lesur waited with longing and an often broken heart for the Lord to reveal himself to her husband. Her diary is punctuated with entries like this one. It is a great and double affliction that I suffer, my life and the great solitude of my soul, so different from what I would have wished, to be always with dear ones or friends to whom one can never open one's heart even for an instant, to whom one can never reveal anything of one's inmost being is an intense grief. Jesus Christ must have known it. He who had so much to give of himself and who endured painful rebuffs and reverses besides which the ones I sometimes suffer are nothing. And then entries like this one. A short conversation with my dear Felix, her husband, a little while ago deeply stirred the hopes and desires of my soul concerning that dear soul. And this one, from the last entry she made in her diary before her death in her mid-40s from cancer in 1914. Do not delay, O my God. Hearken to these desires that thou knowest well. Give great and Christian happiness to these beloved children and sanctify them all. Unite my soul with the souls of those I love, the soul I love best of all, her husband. And put an end to this grievous solitude of spirit which weighs on me so much. Help me, dear Savior. But it was not to be. She died with her husband still an unbeliever. But upon the discovery and the reading of her diary after her death, upon the realization of the woman he had been married to all of those years, his life, Felix Lesur's life, was transformed, so much so that he eventually entered the Christian ministry. He published his wife's diary as a testament to her life and as an act of penitence on his own part. Hers was a waiting life, as every Christian life must be in certain important respects. Waiting for much in our own individual lives, waiting for still more in the life of the world. We're always longing for the advent of the Lord, always counting on his coming, his arrival, to make up for what is lacking in our lives and the life of the world. It's the very nature of our faith to do so. Because ours is a faith in what God has promised, but which we do not yet possess. It is confidence in the word of God which holds 
before us endless rapture and perfect fulfillment of human life, which none of us has yet experienced or ever shall in this world. Now, the history that is recounted in the book of Joshua is, as we said, a certain kind of advent or arrival. A long-awaited promise is fulfilled as the Lord draws near, reveals himself, and as a result, Israel enters and occupies the promised land. But though it pretends the advent, the arrival, it is not the advent itself. Even Joshua himself, great man that he was, and as great as were the things that he accomplished, was no Moses. We take a step down in Joshua 1.1, don't we? Moses dominates the Bible more than anyone besides Jesus himself. His name is mentioned 767 times in the Old Testament and 79 times in the New. Joshua is mentioned twice in the New Testament. There are ups and there are downs in the life of faith and the life of the church. There are times of plenty, times of want. There are plateaus. There are times of advance, times of retraction, times of treading water, comings and goings, if you will. There are great leaders and good leaders and bad leaders. And as we well know that Israel occupied the promised land under Joshua didn't mean that she was to live worthy of that great gift that God had given her. She would more often betray the Lord than prove her loyalty to him. And her betrayal would eventually reach the point that she was driven from the promised land into exile. And upon her return, a much diminished people would remain in it at the pleasure of more powerful states, servants in her own country. But this too is typical of the biblical history and the history of the church ever since. The Lord's advents have been and are anticipated in times of spiritual advance and blessing. The exodus from Egypt and the conquest of Canaan were not the incarnation, but as dramatic fulfillment of promises made by the Lord long ago, they were powerful demonstrations that the Lord will always be as good as his word. And that if he has promised that the Messiah would come, it was only a matter of time before he arrived. In the same way, the Lord's first coming was the dramatic guarantee of his second. So has been the progress of the gospel through the world and the millions upon millions of lives that have been transformed by him through the ages ever since. Every time the Lord bestows his blessing upon his people, every time he reveals himself in some noteworthy way, every time he comes to us, fulfills a promise he has made, our confidence that all of his promises, and especially the promise of his second coming, is increased. Every time he reveals himself to us in his love, his grace, his power, we are made the more sure that his second coming is only a matter of time. The book of Joshua begins with Joshua succeeding Moses, who has just died. The book ends 24 chapters later with the death of Joshua and Eleazar the priest, which 
and with their burial and the burial of the bones of Joseph, which Israel had carried with her when she departed Egypt at the time of the Exodus. Three burials. But the point of them is that all three were in the promised land. God had been true to his word. He had kept his promise. He had told Abraham that his descendants would be given Canaan as their own land and now Israel occupied that land and had made it her own. Nothing said ownership in those days more than a family grave. And the point is, as we begin our celebration of Advent, every promise the Lord has already kept is proof that he will keep those yet to be fulfilled. And as Advent is a time of joy, remember that nothing increases joy than having to wait for it. God's help is always sure. His method seldom guessed. Delay will make our pleasure pure. Surprise will give it zest. Amen.